Okay, I need you all to help me out this morning. So we're going to do a little participation. So you've got to fill in the blanks. So if I said to you, um, like father, you would say? Son. Good. If I said birds of a feather, you would say? Good. If I said it was the best of times, you would say? Good. Some of you need to buy a book, but good, right? There are certain things in our culture that we get like that, that, that we know. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to ruminate on it. We don't have to study it. We just sort of know. It's like instinctive to us. And it's the same way with God. There are certain things about God that sort of come to us. If, if we begin to think about who God is, there's certain ideas that, that come quickly. Like if I asked you, describe God. Tell me what God is like. What are some of the words you would use? Holy is one, right? So when we talk about our God, we're talking about a God in the scriptures who's holy. All right? Someone else said loving. If we talk about God, we're talking about a God who is loving. Something else? Everlasting. Everlasting. Sovereign, right? So when we hear these words, I imagine that our hearts are going, yeah, when we talk about God, sovereign and everlasting, and, and you can fill out the description with more words. He, he's all wise and forgiving and compassionate and merciful. He's kind. He's powerful. And on and on. And at all those points, I think our heads would nod in agreement and our hearts would go, yeah. What if into those mix of words, I threw in the word angry? That, that when we talk about our God, the God of the scriptures, we're talking about a God who is angry. What if I went further and said that when we talk about our God, we're talking about a God of fury, who is furious. I imagine you've got, you know, more hesitation in your heart because you're thinking, Ajay, I had all kinds of words that were coming, but those aren't the ones, right? What if we pushed it a little further and said that when the scriptures speak of God, it speaks of a God who is full of wrath? Let me push it a little further, that the scriptures speak of a God who hates. Again, I imagine that you've got all sorts of words that flood in the mind, wrath and hate and anger and fury aren't necessarily the ones, right? Love, no problem. Sovereign, everlasting, but hating, furious, angry, wrathful. And yet what I want you to hear, those are all words the scriptures use to describe God, to tell us who God is. That among his other attributes, the scriptures don't shy away from telling us that God is angry and full of wrath. The truth is, often we've bought a misconception of God that, that's popular in our day and in our culture and that we prefer. So rather than us being made in the image and likeness of God, we've sort of taken God and made Him in the image and likeness of us, fashioned Him to be palatable to our taste and our sensibilities. So, so the God we prefer is, is sort of the cosmic ATM machine, the, the one where we insert our prayers when we need blessing, when we need to get into college, when we need health, and we withdraw blessings from his account. Or at very least, even if you don't believe in God, you're sort of convinced that if there is a God, he is surely loving and kind. So, so we've got the notion of the gray-haired grandfather in the sky. He's got the long gray beard, and his longing is just to have and to hold you. You're the center of his universe. He's got no purposes of his own. He's got no agenda of his own. His whole being is just to put you on his lap and to hug and to hold and to coddle you. And yet the picture that the scriptures present of who God truly is, is so starkly different. Because the scriptures do not hesitate to tell us 
that God is full of wrath. That God is angry. That God is furious. That God even hates. Do you know that in the scriptures, scholars tell us that there are more verses about the anger and wrath of God than the love of God. So, so if we were to take piles of verses and make piles of them, that the verses about God's anger would be a higher heap than the verses about God's love. It, it's everywhere in the scriptures. Let me let you hear the scriptures. Psalm 7 verse 11 says this, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. Nahum 1 verse 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce wrath? His anger is poured out like fire, and the rocks are shattered before him. Isaiah verse 13, 9. Chapter 13, verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 63. I have trodden the winepress alone. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. The vision Isaiah has of God is of a man who's in a winepress stomping out the grapes, the blood of the grapes splatting everywhere. So is God, Isaiah says, stomping out his enemies and the wicked, their blood splattering and staining his clothing. Or listen to Psalm 11, verse 5. The soul of God hates the wicked and those who love violence. God hates the wicked. We could keep reading verse after verse. There's over 580 of them. The Bible everywhere seems to speak of a God who is full of wrath. So maybe at that point you go, okay, Jay, of course that's how God was in the Old Testament. He's, he's a total hothead back then. But then he sort of matures and he mellows out and he goes to college and, and now you've got Jesus in the New Testament. A much more sophisticated, rounded out God. And Jesus is what? Love and mercy all the time. Is that what you see of Christ? Well, what do you do in Mark 3 when Jesus, the, the scripture says, is angry at the people who have gathered in the worship place so that he forms a cord of whips, a leather whip, and drives them out? Or, or what do you do about the fact that Jesus speaks more of hell than he does of heaven? In fact, Jesus speaks more of hell than anyone else in the scriptures. Or, or consider some of the stories Jesus tells, his parables. Some of them are warm and fuzzy, so they, they make you feel cuddly, like it's the good shepherd who's going to leave the 99 to find the lost one, or the father who's going to run after the prodigal sons. But some of his stories end how? With someone standing outside in the darkness, weeping, wailing, gnashing their teeth, banging on the door, hoping someone will open, but the door never opens, ever. And they are shut out in the darkness, weeping forever. Like some of Jesus' stories, we wouldn't tell our kids at night unless we wanted them to have nightmares. The New Testament, Paul warns us to run from the judgment seat of who? Jesus. Or, or listen to this verse from Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is what it says. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man. That's everyone. They hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us 
and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So, so what's the vision of Jesus? Weak, meek, quiet Lamb? No. Rather, the one from whom men say, it would be better for the mountains to crush my head than for me to stand before King Jesus. So, so the scriptures are unified and clear in not presenting two gods, but one from cover to cover who is angry and furious and full of wrath and hates sin. Now, now you've got to qualify that because I imagine one of the hesitations in our heart is because we've seen how ugly anger is. So, so we recoil at this idea that God could be angry because we know how ugly anger looks. So, so we know hot-tempered husbands who yell at their wives or impatient fathers who bark at their children. And we see the pettiness and selfishness in our heart that boils over into anger. God's anger is so starkly different. God's anger is not spasmodic or out of control or untempered. God's anger is fixed, controlled, right, just, true, all the time. God's anger is not somehow in opposition to His love, but rather often birthed out of His love. Right? It's not that the two contradict. If I saw something or someone hurting my two-year-old, I am not better for standing indifferently by the side. No, the right reaction in my heart is to be angry at the thing which is ruining what I love. And so God, in His love for us, hates that which destroys us. As He hates that which goes against His character, all things that are wicked and sinful. So God's anger is rightly, justly, fully fixed on sin, on iniquity, wherever and in whomever it is found. God's wrath will extinguish and eliminate and eradicate and, and destroy sin wherever and in whomever it is found. So if you're tracking with me, you go at this point, uh-oh, right? Because you've got a problem. If God's anger is fixed and focused on sin wherever and in whomever it is found, if he hates iniquity wherever and in whomever it's found, you go, uh-oh, because there's sin in me. There's iniquity in me. So the question you've got to ask is, does that mean then that God's anger, God's wrath, God's fury is fixed and focused on us? And I want you to hear that the scriptures shout, Yes! Yes! If you've been told otherwise, you've been lied to, the scriptures shout that God's anger and wrath and hatred rests on us. Ephesians 2 says that by nature we are objects of God's wrath. That by nature and by choice, we have rebelled against God, disobeyed God, wanted nothing to do with God, and God's anger and hatred and fury and wrath rightly rests on us. That all of it is fixed and focused on us. So maybe at this point you go, Ajay, time out. Because the truth is, I don't see God's wrath anywhere. You, you look around your world and you go, I, I don't see God's anger anywhere or wrath anywhere. In fact, if you're honest, God seems more absent than he does angry. 
When's the last time you saw fireballs fall from the sky and consume the wicked? Or when's the last time lightning bolts struck you in your time of sin? In fact, the truth is, many of you continue to live in unrepentant sin and you see success and not anger or wrath. It seems, if anything, that God is more absent than He is angry. Where are the evidences of His wrath? Well, the Scriptures say that God reveals His wrath in two ways. He does it now, and He does it later. How does God reveal His wrath now? Romans 1 says that God reveals His wrath now in letting sinners have their way. So, when I was young, as an example, like all of you, when you're a kid, you want to do that which you're not supposed to do. So every request of your parents is, can I go here, can I do that, can I do that, can I do this? And my parents' constant refrain was, no, 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 right? The only English word my father knew was no, right? I said no, no means no, obey, okay? These are the only things I heard, right? So you just hear no all the time. But there were those times when I was not going to do it. I'm not taking no, I, I want this. And so I persist and I insist and I keep at it and I'm not taking no. And I keep going and I keep going. You know what the worst thing they could do? The worst thing your parents could do was not scream louder or yell no stronger or even beat you harder. The, the worst thing they would do to me is they had this phrase in the Indian language which basically meant go do whatever you want. They, they would say go do whatever you want. And when they said that I knew I was in trouble, right? Because now I've, I've passed the border of safety and I'm in dangerous terrain because when they, what they were saying was, go do whatever you want and, and see what happens. Reap what you sow. The scriptures say that God reveals His wrath in letting sinners have their way. You want it? Have it your way. Three times in Romans 1, it says God gave them over to what they wanted. In verse 24, it says, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to have done. So God's wrath is being revealed now in letting you have what you want. It's as if God is saying to you, you want sin, you want iniquity, you want porn, you want greed, you want dishonesty, you want gossip. Have it your way. C.S. Lewis says, there's only two types of people. Those who will say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God will say, thy will be done. Mm. Right? Only two types. Either you say to God, thy will be done, or God says to you, thy will be done. God gives you over to what you want. I have a friend who is succeeding in his sin, and I'm pleading with him to see, maybe... It's not the favor of God that's letting you succeed, but rather the wrath of God that's letting you go to continue in your hardness of heart and rebellion against God. So the wrath of God lets you go. So, so what I want you to hear is, if you don't feel conviction for sin, listen, if you don't feel the Holy Spirit dragging at you, pulling at you, prodding you, you should be terrified lest the wrath of God has let you into your sin and let you go. 
The God of the Scripture says he expresses his wrath now in letting sinners have their way. And then Romans 2 says, and then you'll pay for it later also. It's both now, you get to have what you want, but Romans 2 says, and in doing all that, you are storing up for yourselves wrath for the day of judgment, for the day of wrath. So God, in essence, says, have it your way, but there's a day coming when you will pay, when you will reckon for all that you have done. So here's what we've said so far. God is holy. He hates sin. He hates iniquity. He will extinguish and eradicate and eliminate and exterminate sin wherever and in whomever it is found. Our problem is that sin is in us so that God's anger rests on us both now and later. His wrath and His fury rests on us. And you get sin in this lifetime and you get what you want in eternity, which is life apart from God, hell. At this point, if you're still listening, you go, hold on, right? Time out of jail. Now you're talking about hell. You're talking about eternal punishment. Hold on. And if you're honest, at least the thought in our day, in our culture, and in our hearts is, it, you've, got to be, you've gone too far. At the end of the day, I'm not that bad. Right? You talk with your coworkers. you talk to the city. Our sentiment is, at the end of the day, you're not talking hell, and I'm just not that bad. I get you want to make a point, I'm a sinner, I'm not perfect, but at the end of the day, I'm not that bad. In fact, I bet many of us would have a spiritual resume ready to show God of all the things we've done of why God should owe us favor. The church attendance, the prayers we've prayed, the good we've done, the poor we've helped. We've got a resume a mile long to show God. And we go, at the end of the day, I'm not so bad that he won't let me into heaven. Let me give you an example. Maybe I've shared this before. Say you took, one of the Olympic sports is the long jump. Right? Say you took an Olympic athlete and me and placed us in front of the Grand Canyon. And you told us, jump across. So the Grand Canyon is thousands of feet wide, thousands of feet deep. Say you took Michael Powell. In 1991, Michael Powell was the long-distance jump record holder, Olympic gold. Say you told us both, jump. So I'd take 50 steps back with my incredible physique, right? And I would begin to pump my arms and, and thrust my legs, and I would get to the edge, and I would jump. And I'd go a whopping two feet before gravity takes over, and I fall thousands of feet and hit the bottom. Now Michael Powell's turn. He is an infinitely better athlete than me. He is the world record holder. And what does he do? He takes 50 steps back. He sprints as hard as he can. Muscles bulging. He gets to the edge. He jumps. 29 feet was his world record. Say he breaks it and jumps 30. Say he shatters it and jumps 40. Say he gets a gust of wind and destroys it and jumps 60. What happens? Gravity takes over, and he falls thousands of feet splat at the bottom next to me. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so that none of us are good enough to get to God. The chasm between us and God caused by sin is so great, you could place Mother Teresa next to Hitler, next to me, and all of us fall short. None of us have a resume good enough to get to God. So at that point you go, okay, hold on, fine. God is holy, he hates sin, sin is in me, his anger rests on me. I'm not good enough to get to God. But you go, time out, 
because I've got one more. At the end of the day, God is too loving to sentence me to hell. God is too kind to let me go to hell. God, God is too forgiving to let that happen. Let me give you one more example. Uh, a preacher once said, say you had a murderer rapist who was brought into trial. Say he was convicted guilty. Say he had confessed of his crimes. The judge is about to sentence him. And say he says to the judge, the, the judge asks him, do you have anything left to say? And say at that moment he says, listen, I know I've committed these crimes, but you are a good and loving judge. And so I know you will not sentence me. What would the judge say? The judge would say, you're right. I, I am a good and loving judge, which is why I must punish you. Right? If America's judges today let rapists and murderers walk the streets, we would not applaud them for their kindness or their love. We would shout injustice. We would shout, they are unkind and unloving and ungood judges. And God, if he let sin go, if he winked at sin, if he dismissed sin, would be the same. But he is not. And so he must punish sin with the full extent of his might and power wherever and in whomever it is found. I get we live in America, so we're in the Western Hemisphere, we're in the 21st century, so we really struggle with this idea of how can God be both loving and good? How can God be full of love and yet be full of wrath? I think it's because we just don't think through how obvious it is. Like we've said already, love births anger when we see it ruining someone that we love. One philosopher said this idea, this conception that we have in America, in our city, in Philly, that God is somehow not going to pay back sin or judge or somehow not be angry. He said this is the kind of conception that could only be born in suburbia. So, so what he means is this. Only if you've lived such a cushy, safe, protected, easy life could you conceive of a God who will not judge sin and iniquity. Because if you travel to another side of the world where the, the ground is soaked with blood of senseless killing, if you travel to the places where children are trapped into slavery and sold as prostitutes, if you travel to the places where men and women are murdered for no reason, if you travel to the place where injustice is the norm all the time, and you say to them, God is not full of wrath, they will say to you that God is not full of love. Because they will say to you, if you're telling me that God is blind to everything that's happening, all the rapes and all the murders and all the injustice, that God's going to shrug his shoulders at all of that, they will say to you that is an unloving God. If God does not deal with sin, then you and I should take up arms and go about vengeance because someone's got to pay. Right? If God does not deal with sin, you pluck out my eye, I pluck out two of yours because no one else is going to take care of it. But if he does, then we can believe the scriptures that says, don't repay evil because vengeance is of the Lord's. And he will make sure every injustice and every sin is righted. Every wrong made right. That none of the sins done against even you go unnoticed. None of it has fallen down a drain. None of it has been forgotten. Every single one will be brought to account. Nothing has passed by his eye. So then the scriptures say God is holy. He hates sin. We are sinners. We're not good enough to get to God. And God is too holy and too good to simply let us go. 
Do you see the problem of our sin? If you can see the problem of our sin, then only will you fully appreciate God's solution. Because then only will you say with me, thanks be to God for Christ crucified. Because the answer for God's wrath and for His mercy is the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is where the anger of God for sin and the mercy of God for sinners meet. The cross is the marriage of God's wrath and God's love. It's where the peace of God and the love of God kiss. It's where they are brought together. Because the cross is where all of this is answered. The, the scripture Philip read for us said that Jesus has become our propitiation. Big word in the Bible that means Jesus the, is the means by which the wrath of God is dealt with. By which the wrath of God aimed at us is averted and turned away because it was absorbed by Christ. Hear these verses from the New Testament and listen for the word propitiation and remember what we're saying. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 2 says he was made a brother like us so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 4, in this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to do what? To be the propitiation for our sins. So here's what the cross says. The cross says God's anger required propitiation. But the cross says God's mercy provided for it. God's wrath and anger and hatred for sin required punishment. But God's mercy and love for sinners provided the punishment. So the cross is the fullest expression of God's hatred for sin. And the fullest expression of God's love for sinners. Let me say that again. The cross is the fullest expression of God's hatred and anger and wrath and fury against sin. And it is simultaneously the fullest expression of God's mercy and grace and love for sinners. It's the fullest expression of His hatred for sin. So that means Jesus, God allowed Jesus to die. God allowed the brow to be pierced with thorns. God allowed the nails to his body. God allowed the spear to his side and the cross on his back. God allowed his son to be pummeled and pierced because he hates sin. It's as if sin was like water building up behind a dam. And at the cross, God opens the dam and all of his fury and all of his wrath and all of his anger is poured out on Jesus. He does not relent. He does not spare. He mercilessly lets his son die to shout to us how much he hates sin. Our sin, if you want to see how serious it is, you've got to look at Jesus' dead body. Because only then will you get a glimpse of how thoroughly God hates wickedness. The, the cross is God's megaphone to the world shouting, This is how I hate Sin. But the cross is simultaneously the place of God's mercy. 
The cross is simultaneously the fullest expression of God's mercy and love for sin. Someone had to pay. Someone had to be punished. And all the wrath and all the anger and all the fury that was fixed on your head has been shifted and poured on Christ. So that all the mercy and all the grace and all the love and all the peace might be poured lavishly onto you. Jesus, in our place, for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God so that we might live under the mercy of God. Jesus, in our place, for our sins. I can give you illustration after illustration. I can tell you a father who dies for child. I can tell you a brother who gives life for brother, a husband who dies for wife, friend for friend. Every illustration finds its root in this. God hangs on a tree for you. Like some of us struggle to know how do we know God loves us. I, I want some kind of confirmation, some kind of feeling. You've got to hear how the scriptures logic work. The scriptures do not say when God heals you, when God gives you a home, when God gives you a good life, when God makes you happy, when God gives you a feeling, then you know God loves you. The way the scriptures answer the question is Christ. Right? But God demonstrates his love. Romans 5. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. So now you've got to say, okay, Paul, tell us, how is it that God's going to demonstrate his love? But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's not sending a second feeling for you to know that he loves you. He's not sending you a happy life. He's not sending you a home. He sent you Christ. And every time you doubt his love, look to Christ. 1 John 4, this is love. So tell us, John, what is love? What does love from God look like? This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. So when your heart drifts to the cold place of knowing or fearing that God no longer loves you, let it be warmed again where? At the cross. Because this is how God demonstrates His love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when you look at the dead, broken, bloodied body of Jesus, it's God's megaphone to the world shouting, this is how I hate sin, but it is also God's megaphone to the world shouting, this is how I love you. This is how I love sinners. I poured out the full extent of my wrath on my son so that I might pour out the full extent of my mercy on you. Oh, the benefits that are ours because Christ crucified for our propitiation. Consider the benefits that are ours. Do you know that this means that you no longer have to punish yourself for sin? You know, when you fail, when you sin, you've got that dreadful feeling like God is out to get you. And now you're going to have to pay. What this means is that God already got Christ and made Christ pay so you never would. 1 John 4, the passage Philip read said... Perfect love casts out fear, for fear is with punishment. And there is now left for you no punishment, no condemnation. You never have to fear condemnation ever again. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God may discipline you like a father who loves his children, but he will never condemn you because he condemned Christ. I mean, even the language I use with Hannah is trying to remember, I don't punish her. Because she's my child. I discipline her. Because God doesn't punish me. He doesn't condemn me. He disciplines me. He's already punished and condemned Christ. 
the, the benefits that are ours. This means, this is real practical, that you can forgive people. You've got hurts done against you, and you've got this feeling in your soul like someone has to pay for this hurt. And people tell you, just let it go, just let it go. And you know why that never works? Because you can't. But the cross has dealt with it. Because someone has pain. Because you don't need to crucify someone else again. Because it's not like your hurts have been unnoticed by God. They have been dealt with. They will either be dealt with in the life to come, or they've been dealt with on the cross. You need not crucify anyone again. Someone has already paid for all those hurts. Christ crucified for our propitiation. So I plead with you, the Scriptures plead with you, run from the wrath of God and fly to the mercy of God. Because in the end, you will stand before God and either you will give account for your life and be judged, or you will hide your life in Christ and God will look on Him and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, come inherit the kingdom prepared for you. The cross is the fullest expression of God's hatred for sin and the fullest expression of God's love for you. Amen. Let's pray.